is uh, Alan Wilson, or Dr. Alan Wilson. He did his uh, PhD with the Irish uh, Baptist College and the University of Chester. We're delighted to have you back, Alan. Alan taught as a teacher before moving to Switzerland as a pastor of a new international church in Geneva. And then in 2007, he moved back to Northern Ireland where he pastored at the Port Stewart uh, Baptist Church. And since then, he's been involved in preaching and teaching. Uh, he works with a number of Bible colleges uh, in Ireland. So we're delighted to have you, uh, Alan. Your title this morning is A Song of Exile from Psalm 137. And then Alan's back this evening launching a new series called Our Eternal Hope, uh, taken from Revelation chapter 21, 22. Alan. Thank you, David. Uh, good to be again in the present. I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 137 if you have your Bible with you. Um, we're going to read this uh, psalm. You'll recognize at least some of it. Uh, those of you uh, who can recall your disco dancing days from the 1970s will be familiar at least with the first line or two of it. And if you're not somebody who was involved in disco dancing in the 70s, uh, maybe you'll understand my reference to that in a moment. So Psalm 137, we'll begin at uh, the beginning of the psalm. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is God's Word. Even if we may uh, wonder why it says some of the things that it says, this is God's Word uh, as we think about this this morning. Now, there are probably a couple of reasons why this particular psalm stands out for us. Uh, one of the reasons, I think, is cultural, and the other is more theological. The cultural reason, first of all, uh, has to do really with that very jaunty uh, disco version of a song that originally appeared in 1972 by the rivers of Babylon. Uh, interestingly, it actually was, uh, it initially appeared uh, on the soundtrack of a Jamaican movie, and apparently it was originally banned by the Jamaican government, by the rivers of Babylon. We sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion, and so on and so on. And the reason they banned it was because the Rastafarian uh, religion, um, which had given expression to the sentiments of that particular song at that particular time, uh, had all kinds of references that were perceived by the Jamaican government as being a bit too insurrectionist. Because the Rastafarians, they liked to look at Ethiopia, and they thought of Ethiopia as Zion. They thought of the Jamaican police as Babylon. And you can imagine if a song like that was being sung that, uh, well, it didn't go down too well with the powers uh, that, that were at the time. 
Of course, eventually somebody pointed out to the Jamaican government, well, you can't really ban it because it's in the Bible. You can't really ban the Bible. So they unbanned it, and it went on to be recorded by another group later on and became quite popular. And so, no doubt, many of you uh, have that little melody dancing around in your head. And if you're too young to remember it, you can always Google it. Uh, we talked about Gareth. I didn't quite ask, go as far as to ask Gareth if he would uh, lead us in, in singing it uh, this morning. Uh, that certainly would have made this a very memorable morning. The other reason why the psalm stands out for us is not just the cultural reason that it st- the, the, theologi- the cultural reason that it stands out, but there's also this theological reason, and it has to do with the final paragraph of the psalm, which really, when you think about it, is rather blood-curdling, this blood-curdling denunciation of Babylon. I can remember a friend of mine from, uh, who grew up not very far from here in South Belfast. I remember him years ago paraphrasing it into uh, how Belfast people might express it. It was something like, blessed is the man who baits wee Babylonian babies' heads off the pavement. Uh, that may not sound uh, like a very reverent translation of Scripture, but that colloquial way, I think, helps us to understand some of the emotion that's there. And of course, it raises a problem for us, doesn't it? If you want to buy a greeting card for someone in the Faith Mission Bookshop or any other Christian bookshop, you're unlikely to find a a card that will include that verse from the end of Psalm 137. And yet, there it is in God's Word to us. It's a song of exile. It's what we've called this this morning. It's a song of exile. It looks back at what was really a dreadful season uh, in the story of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. Its inhabitants were forcibly displaced to Babylon hundreds of miles away. And as some of you will realize, that whole period of time uh, provides the background to quite a bit of the Old Testament. It's the background of the story of Daniel, for example. It's the background to the message of Jeremiah that people should seek the welfare of the city. And that maybe seems like a very surprising piece of advice when you read the tone of Psalm 137. The story of Esther is set during a time of exile, although exile moves on and the Babylonians are replaced by the Persians. And it was from exile uh, under the Persians, who were the successors of the Babylonians, that Nehemiah traveled to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And of course, you realize also that the name Babylon looms very large in parts of the book of Revelation. Now, there are three main parts to the psalm, and all of them have to do with something, something with, uh, have something to do with remembering Zion or remembering Jerusalem. It's another word for Jerusalem. So, if you notice the first four verses, um, he says there, we sat down and we, re- and we wept when we remembered Zion. And remembering in, this, in those first four verses has to do with sadness, And we realize that exile, the experience of exile, is an experience that gives us a time to lament. The second thing, uh, in verse 5 and verse 6, remembering, it's almost in a negative way, he's saying, may I never forget Jerusalem. And you see there in verses 5 and 6 that exile is a time to resolve. It's a time to resolve that you will never forget. And in verse 7 to verse 9, the writer appeals directly to the Lord, and he says to the Lord, will you remember? 
remember the day of Jerusalem against the Edomites. And you see there that exile brings up this theme of vengeance. So there's a time to lament, there's a time to remember, and there's a time to pray. Those are the three sections that we want to look at over the next few minutes. First of all, verses 1 to 4, a time to lament. The tone of those, of those first four verses is a tone of sadness and, and devastation. The psalm appears to have been written sometime after the exile, but in his mind, the psalmist is going back to a group of exiles who are sitting alongside some of the Babylonian rivers and waterways. And they, in turn, are thinking back. They're thinking back to Jerusalem. They're thinking back to Zion. It's not just nostalgia. I think the older we get, we can all get a little bit nostalgic, or quite a bit nostalgic, in fact, at times. But this is not just nostalgia. This is not just a longing for better days. This is much more than that. These people are experiencing the devastation of forced exile, and that's allied to the destruction of a city that meant so much to them. And I think that many of us uh, here in Belfast who've lived most of our lives around uh, this, this part of the world, many of us find it very difficult to enter fully into that kind of experience. And maybe to help us, we need to think about the experience of millions of people who are displaced around the world today, or victims of human trafficking who are not just removed from their homes, but they're also forced to live under the oppression of their captors. You can imagine what it would be like for people like that to read these verses and for them to say, do you know what? There's something in this Bible that resonates with my experience. And of course, over and beyond the basic plight of forced exile that these people were experiencing, there was this added dimension of Babylonian mockery. And the Babylonians would say to them, go on, sing one of those songs of Zion, one of those joyful songs of Zion. They knew that there were plenty of songs in Jerusalem. Maybe they also knew that there were songs about Jerusalem, songs that celebrated the very special place that Jerusalem had. Think of Psalm 48, one of the best known. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain, Mount Zion, the city of the great King, the city of God, which God will establish forever. Or Psalm 132, the Lord has chosen Zion. Now, try singing those songs when the city lies in ruins and it's been overrun by the Babylonians. And you realize some of the questions that must have occurred to people. If the Lord has chosen it, well, how come He doesn't seem to have looked after it terribly well? And for the Babylonians then to ask the Jewish captives to sing those kind of songs while they were sat there in forced exile in Babylon was cruel mockery. So they hang up their lyres, their harps, instruments of praise, and they say, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Of course, there's an irony about that, isn't there? Because uh, this is a song, Psalm 137 is a song. It's a song about not singing, although it's written after the event. But how do we sing the Lord's song when these kind of things have happened and we find ourselves 
in a strange land. As you think about that, you think, well, would it not actually have been a good idea to keep on singing some of the Lord's songs while you were in a foreign land? It's a way of remembering where you'd come from, a way of remembering who God is. Would that not have been a good idea to sing songs like that? And surely, by saying, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Surely they're not saying, well, God's not relevant anymore. I mean, clearly God was still relevant. God still was alive and well, uh, even in Babylon, and eventually Babylon would be overthrown. And the stories of people like Daniel and his friends would demonstrate that life in Babylon was not beyond the reach of the God of Israel. But for now, the pain of what they had lost and what they were suffering was just too great, and the mockery was too heavy. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Do you know, you don't need me to tell you, God doesn't change. God never changes. And in that sense, it's always appropriate to praise God for what He's made, for His unique character, for His glory, for what He's done for us. But I think it's important for us to say that doesn't always mean that we're going to be singing I am H-A-P-P-Y. Because the fact that God is unchanging and the fact that what God has made and God's glory, those things don't change, it doesn't exempt us from times of sadness and times of confusion. And I think one of the great values of the book of Psalms is the whole range of human emotions that are covered in the Psalms. These Psalms are the the hymn book of the Old Testament, the songs that Jesus sang. And they're given to us to help us to relate all of life to God, not just the happy times, not just the triumphant times, but the times of sadness. There is a place for lament. And this exile was a time of lament for these people. Now, something more to be said, I think, about exile is that there's, there's a dimension of exile that is not just physical. We think of exile, and it's people who have been moved geographically from one part of the world to another, or from one country to the next country, something like that, a geographical element. But I think there's also an element of exile that has to do with the state of mind. Think about Zion. Think about Jerusalem and what it represented. Jerusalem represented what was familiar, what was stable, and what was secure. That is what has been destroyed. And in that sense, then, exile has to do with being dislocated from what we thought was secure, what we thought was stable, and from what was familiar to us. And that then raises questions, doesn't it? If we find ourselves living in a time when the foundations have been shaken, is God still going to be worthy of trust and loyalty? For these people, is God still worthy of their trust? Is He still worthy of their, their loyalty? Now that Zion has collapsed. If Zion has collapsed, if that is gone and you can't depend on that anymore, what about the God of Zion? What does it mean to live in exile in, in that sense? What does it mean for maybe many of our brothers and sisters who live in parts of the world where the, the dominant 
culture uh, is, is uh, shaped by different religions, like Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam, or where the state rules and where it forces conformity, like living in Babylon. What does it mean to be faithful to God in a place like that? What about us? I dare say there are some of, some of us here in this building this morning, and, and we can't help think that the foundations are being shaken. Things that maybe we thought were stable, things that we thought would never change. We're in a part of the world whose life has been shaped, it's been, it's been steeped in Christianity, shaped by Christianity in many ways. What do we do when the shared assumptions of our society start to change? What do we do when what we thought was reliable and unshaken is shaken and actually begins to fall? How do we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Exile is a time of lament. Secondly, it's also a time to remember. As I've said, that's the particular theme that runs all the way through the psalm, but I want to particularly focus on it in verses 5 and 6. There's a determination in these verses never to forget Jerusalem. Now, you notice verse 5 and 6 move from talking about we. We sat down. It, move, it moves to talking about I. Still about remembering Zion, but this time the note is not so much lament, it's determination. The psalmist isn't just going to hang up his harp and say, well, let's just uh, put the past behind us. We are where we are. We might as well just become good Babylonians. He's determined never to forget Jerusalem. And he actually imposes a penalty against himself if he would ever forget Jerusalem or that he would ever fail to set Jerusalem above his highest joy. Never forget is what he's saying. Now, there's a tradition in uh, Judaism uh, to this day where when they pray at the end of a meal, they'll pray before a meal to give thanks for what they're, they're going to, to eat, but when they say grace at the end of a meal, they recite a psalm. During the week, in other words, the days that are not, uh, that are not Sabbath, during the week, the psalm that they choose to recite when they've finished eating their meal together as they give thanks for what they've just eaten is Psalm 137. You see, even at mealtime, which would have been a time, which would be a time of great joy, a time of celebration, a time of people being together, they're saying, may what happened to Jerusalem never be forgotten. Go back for a moment to verse 1, where the psalmist says, we sat down and wept. Now, that expression, sit down and weep, occurs in at least one other part in the Old Testament. It's the story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 4. Nehemiah gets news from his brother about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the demoralization of the people who were there in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah says, when I heard all this, I sat down and wept. And you realize from this that you could take the Jews out of Jerusalem, but you could never take Jerusalem out of the heart of the Jews. Now, there's a tension in the Old Testament. Psalm 137 on the one hand, Jeremiah chapter 29 on the other. Jeremiah 29 was part of Jeremiah's prophecy. Jeremiah sent a letter to the exiles 
uh, early, in, early in, in, in exile. This is the passage, by the way, which has that famous verse, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans to give you hope and a future. Uh, you'll find that probably on a card in the faith mission, even if you don't find Psalm 137 <clears throat> on a card like that. But what's happening in Jeremiah chapter 29 is that there were a lot of people who said, well, this exile thing's not really going to last. It can't last. First of all, they said, well, Jerusalem's not going to be destroyed. And, well, some of the prophets then came along and said, well, if there's going to be exile, it's only going to be, it's only going to be a little while. Uh, you'll be back in no time. And Jeremiah says, well, actually, no, you won't be back in no time. You're going to be there for a while. You're going to be there for several decades. <coughs> and while you're there, he says, settle down in the city and seek its welfare. I find that's a fascinating tension, isn't it? You know, on the one hand, while their hearts are crying out, how do we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And then when they're, they're sitting down and God's saying to them, pray for the city of Jerusalem. But even though they were to settle in Babylon, and even to seek the welfare of the city of Babylon, they were never to forget where they'd come from. I think, you see, this is how Daniel lived his life. Look at how Daniel prospers uh, in terms of government, civil service, uh, while he was living in exile. He was a model citizen. Yet Daniel prayed towards Jerusalem three days, three times every, three times every day. Never forget Jerusalem. And I think some of these stories give us a real, a real sense of, of what it means to live in exile. We cannot simply turn back the clock to a happier day. You know, we may feel, you know, our society is changing, uh, God has been sidelined, the church is being sidelined. We may think all of those kinds of things, but we cannot turn the clock back to the 1950s. I remember someone once saying, hearing someone once say that if the 1970s ever come back, some people will be ready for them. And sometimes that's how we want to live. We'll be on the cutting edge of the 1970s. You can't turn the clock back. Okay, you turn the clock back in October because uh, of the winter time, but you can't turn the clock back to another era. You can't live in the past. You need to work out what it means to live where we are today. But we can remember where our allegiance truly lies. In spite of the turmoil, in spite of maybe the sense of loss, even a sense of lament, we can remember where our allegiance really lies. And you see, this is why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because we're living as citizens on earth. But yet we're saying our primary allegiance is to another kingdom. And our aspiration is for the time when that kingdom becomes full reality on earth as it is in heaven. That's why, as Colossians says it in the New Living, the New Living Translation, we're to set our minds on the realities of heaven. Exile is a time for lament, but exile is also a time of determination. It's a time when we say, we know who we are. We know 
the story of which we are a part. We know what our identity is, and our citizenship in the kingdom of God is what defines our identity and should shape our priorities. Jesus said, you seek first the kingdom of God. Final thing is it's a time to pray. It's a time to lament. It's a time for determination. It's a time to pray. Verse 7 to verse 9. And this is where the psalm begins to turn to God himself and asks God to remember Jerusalem. And I guess what makes it difficult for us is this expression of a desire for vengeance. Not only is Babylon mentioned in verses 8 and verse 9, but, but Edom is mentioned, specifically their spite towards Jerusalem. Here's how uh, one of the translations translates the first part of verse 7. O Lord, remember what the Edomites did on the day the armies of Babylon captured Jerusalem. Now again, some of you will, will realize the Edomites were descended from Esau, the twin brother of Jacob. So the Edomites were related to Israel, yet they had a history of opposition to Israel. And several of the Old Testament prophets give some light on, on what this uh, incident in verse 7 may be referring to. Ezekiel 25, God promises vengeance on Edom because he says, Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah. Joel, the prophet Joel, talked about the violence done to the people of Judah. They have shed innocent blood in their, lamb, their land. And Obadiah says this, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. And so the prophets are saying, that the, the prophets are recalling what, how Edom has behaved towards Jerusalem. And as the psalmist then prays at the end of Psalm 137, he's praying right in line with what some of these Old Testament prophets have been saying. And then there's Babylon. Isaiah 13 promised the destruction of Babylon at the hands of the Medes. And here the psalmist is basically saying that he cannot wait until Babylon is destroyed. And he almost envies the people who are going to get to repay Babylon for what Babylon has done to Jerusalem. It's brutal. And we maybe recoil from these kinds of words and these sentiments. I mean, dashing the children of your opponents to pieces. And who, who would even wish that on their worst enemies? that their children's heads would be dashed off the pavement. That was a known form of warfare in the ancient world, and that wasn't just limited to the Babylonians, nor was, has it been limited to, uh, even to the ancient world. And the, the Nazis uh, did this kind of thing uh, at the time of the Second World War. And it was a way of not just attacking the current generation of your enemies, but you got the future generation as well in the most brutal and violent way. And the psalmist says, Babylon's got it coming to them, and I can't wait. That's quite a contrast, isn't it, with Jeremiah's uh, prophecy to, to pray for the city of Jerusalem. And I dare say if you were in exile, and you had the choice between praying for the welfare of the city of Babylon or praying for the day when people would be bashing their children's heads off the pavement, you know how your emotions would have, would have been inclined to, to draw you. 
But what are we to do with this wish for vengeance? Now, here we are, 2,000 years after the coming of Jesus, and Jesus, who told us we were to pray for our enemies. Now, admittedly, the psalmist is not actually planning to pick up weapons and do any of this himself. He's going to let God take care of justice. But as I've said, we're not likely to include these verses in, in a greeting. We had a song for the kids earlier this morning in the, in the service. You're not likely to turn those last few verses and get all the children up to the front and now say, and say, right now, boys and girls, let's sing the last couple of verses of Psalm 137. That'll be fun, won't it? You're not likely to do that. Interestingly, if you've got any Reformed Presbyterian friends, ask them to let you have a look at their hymn book, the Metrical Psalms. They don't leave it out. It's there. And we need to remember at the same time as we struggle with all of this, as I say, that Jesus has taught us to love our enemies and to pray for our persecutors. And there's a difficult tension in, in, in all of this. Let me make a couple of comments. The first thing I want to say about it is this. We must not try to play down the rawness of this emotion. This is a very emotional psalm. There's lament in the first part of it. There's determination in the middle of it. And there's this anger and call for, for vengeance in the third part of it. Zion has been destroyed. The city of God has been destroyed. People have been displaced. They've been tormented. And its children have been slaughtered. The Babylonians have already been doing this to the children of their enemies. And in the face of all of this, you don't just shrug your shoulders at it. And I think if we look at a psalm like this and then we hurry quickly into the New Testament and say, yes, but Jesus told us we have to forgive our enemies, we, can be in, we could be in, in danger of, of playing down the emotion. And there the emotion is in Scripture. You know, when we think about people who have anger problems, we tend to, have pe we tend to think about people who get too angry too quickly at relatively unimportant things. But there's another side of anger issues. And the other side of anger issues is that there are certain things about which we should be angry. And sometimes we're not. Things like oppression, injustice, should stir our emotions, as they do stir the emotions of the psalmists. So there's a place in this psalm for very strong emotion. But then the other thing is this hunger for vengeance, this hunger for justice. Now, let's be honest. There's something about us that wants wrongs to be put right, isn't there? You think of that old quotation from C.S. Lewis, Narnia. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes to sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death, and when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. And it would be normal for us to want to see a world where justice is done, where things that are wrong are put right. But now here's a question. If we find ourselves, if we find ourselves longing for justice, 
and yet somehow trying to pray for our enemies and hold these things together, what about God? Could God love His enemies and at the same time not just long for justice, but actually bring justice about? How does God resolve that tension? And I think it takes us to the cross of Jesus. Because it's in the cross of Jesus that God Himself absorbs the wickedness of His enemies. He takes on Himself in Jesus the penalty of His enemies and secures the forgiveness of His enemies. It is the place where the hymn says, wrath and mercy meet. Justice and mercy and forgiveness meet in the cross of Jesus. And so, as we struggle to maybe try to work out the implications of a psalm like Psalm 137, perhaps it's meant to drive us forward to the cross, where God brings perfect justice and perfect and complete mercy together in one place. And the cross becomes a place of shelter for everyone who believes. I think about that wonderful Welsh hymn, Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the Prince of life, our ransom, shed for us His precious blood, who His love will not remember, who can cease to sing His praise, He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains opened, deep and wide, through the floodgates of God's mercy, flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above, and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed the guilty world in love. So, we find ourselves living in this world. There is so much wrong that needs to be put right. So much wrong that needs to be put right. And yet, as recipients of the grace and the mercy of God, with these longings for the day when things will be put right, at the same time, there's part of us, isn't there, that says, do you know, there but for the grace of God go I. And it's because the justice and mercy of God have met in the cross that we could be here today and that we can experience God's forgiveness. Exile. It's a time to lament. It's a time to remember. It's a time to pray. Let's pray together.